Welcome in, everybody, to Towing the Slab, pitching with David Cohn here on John Boy Media. This is uh, episode two. David, James Smythe in the house as well. Guys, uh, what a debut, right? Uh, number one baseball podcast out of the gate. Uh, David's already filling in on some of the top shelf shows uh, on John Boy Media. So uh, congratulations to you both. How are we doing today? Doing great, Justin. Yeah, I mean, we're happy, happy to, to get this thing going. We're going to do this once a week. We're going to be around all year, all through the offseason for you. So uh, certainly we're looking for ideas. And uh, this is a pitching-centric uh, place to come. You know, and James and I uh, work together on the Yes Network all the time, James. And, you know, you and I also uh, love to talk about sort of the common denominators between the old school and the new school and uh, – you know, this is the place to come. If you're if you're an old school baseball guy and you're mad about modern day pitching, we got a spot for you here. We can talk you through it. We'll talk you off the ledge. And then if you're a new school guy, if you're a young fan or if you're somebody who's really into the metrics or into the some of the new technology, we're on that, too. James and I are all over that for you. So certainly that's one of the reasons, Justin, I wanted to bring James aboard and, and be a part of this project because because he kind of fills in the blanks. You know, when, when I throw a, when I throw a thought out there. I can always look, hey, James, can you help me out here and fill in the blanks? And he's always there. Happy to be here. It's a lot easier, basically, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, fellas, and uh, congrats. Uh, so far, so good through, through one episode. So, man, it's fun, man. Yeah, nice start with our first episode. We also have really nice, uh, awesome new mics that the uh, fine people at John Boy sent us as well. So we're all sounding terrific. We, uh, we got the hookup. We're rolling here as we roll into the World Series. So, yeah, the, you know, we're, we're taping this on Monday, the day before game one. Game one coming up Tuesday night. The Astros and the Braves. And, David, you're talking about whether you're a fan of the old school approach, the the new metrics that we see. I think this World Series, from a pitching standpoint, kind of has something for everybody here. When we get to the World Series, there, there's a lot of – context a lot of subplots that we can get into as well want to quickly before we do that though recap the championship series both the ALCS the NLCS what we saw and how we think the Astros the Braves got to the fall classic here also see how the Red Sox and the Dodgers maybe fell short let me start with the ALCS the Astros over the Red Sox in game six and remember we were talking about in that first episode I think it was after game three how the Astros were kind of in no man's land with their pitching situation. They certainly flipped the script after that game three. Robert Valdez, Luis Garcia, they bounced back. They redeemed themselves from their early series struggles. David, what stood out to you with what we saw from Valdez and Garcia in games five and six, respectively? Well, I I think the thing that, that stood out is sometimes the young pitching holds up better. You know, and it's been a meat grinder for all of the pitchers in the postseason come off, coming off of last year when you had a shortened season because of COVID, obviously. Uh, I, I really think it took its toll on a lot of the veteran pitchers down the stretch run. We saw Scherzer, Max Scherzer, talk about his arm kind of being dead. Uh, really, you, know, the, there's, you go down the list, it's almost age-related, you know, and you, when you look at uh, some of the veteran pitchers and how they struggled uh, – so when you've got two young pitchers that step up, like uh, Valdez and Garcia did for Houston, uh, it was more in line with what they did during the regular season. They both had solid regular seasons. They both have good stuff. They both are very capable of throwing big-time games. And uh, they, they bounced back. And then they were 
the, the reason why Houston kind of uh, pulled ahead. You know, they needed starting pitching. They needed young starting pitching. And both of them were not only good, they were dominant in their starts. And that was the difference, really, in, in the entire series is to get that kind of effort from your rotation and from your young pitchers in your rotation. And that was the, the definitive moment that turned this series around for Houston. The lineup obviously caught fire as well. But the Astros held Boston to one run over the final 26 innings in that series. I wonder, though, on the, uh, the, the championship teams that you were on, what defining moment turned a, a particular series around the most? You know, it's always pitching. It really is. I mean, it's the name of the game. And I know we're biased, and this, this is a – this is a, a pitching centric place to come. That's what, that's what we're building this as, you know, tow the slabs about towing the slabs about pitching. So it usually does hinge around pitching. Uh, you know, when I look back to 1996, you know, I, I think about, uh, you know, Andy Pettit and John Smoltz, you know, it was a one to nothing game, a young Andy Pettit really in his second full year in the big leagues, facing a future hall of famer and John Smoltz and matching him step for step and winning that game one to nothing. Uh, in 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 uh, that '90s, right in the middle of that '96 World Series, uh, I think it was so Game I, Four. Yeah, Game Four, exactly, five. or Game Five rather. It was Game Five. five. Game Four was the Layritz home run off of Wollers that got the series back tied two to two. So you're looking at a two to two series. The Braves won the first two games in 1996. We won the next two games, and then Andy Pettit beats John Smoltz in, in uh, Game Five, one to nothing, and a legendary pitcher's duel. That that still to me I, was the difference in that series right then and right there. And don't sell yourself short, Coney, because uh, you came through with a huge game three on the road in Atlanta to get the Yankees back in the series and make it a two-one series. So that's what I was going to ask you there, Coney, because just reading things over the years, like how tough were you? How how much of your own worst critic were you over the course of the regular season? But then, like in the postseason, how tough were you on yourself? You know, most good pitchers are very tough on themselves. And if you look at some of the uh, interviews they do after their games, especially in particular games they struggle, uh, the good ones beat themselves up pretty good. You know, I think back to some of the pitchers I played with, they all were like that. You know, Andy Pettit was like that, certainly. You know, as I just mentioned, after a game, he, he's his own worst critic. Uh, and and that's that's the right formula for a pitcher because if you're a starting pitcher in a big game in October – you feel that you need to be accountable for not only yourself and your team, but the fan base as well. You feel the the accountability that goes with that and the responsibility that goes with that kind of a big start. So you, you need to thrive in that situation. You need to embrace it. You need to thrive in that situation and you need to be accountable. And if it doesn't go your way, it's okay. It's okay to say, you know what? I didn't get the job done after the game. It's okay to, to face the music with the media afterwards. If that's the worst thing you have to face, then, you're going to be okay in the long run. You know, the, the opportunity to pitch in those sorts of games are, are really what you need to look at as a pitcher. So am I stretching this a little bit too much when I, in my own head, I see like what Fromber Valdez did. Granted, you know, he went two and two thirds in game one, right? Like that, that's something that you never dealt with, at least in this 96 postseason. But based on the, performances earlier in the postseason then coming into game three of that 96 series what was on the line right you guys down 2-0 and then you deliver the way you do and did that kind of reset your mind did that feel like a redeeming moment for you in your in your postseason in that 96 series 
Well, yeah, you know, I think, you know, Justin, you, you, when you think about the history there as well, we were coming off the 95 season when we lost in the postseason. We got knocked out by the Seattle Mariners in 95. Uh, changes were made in the organization. The organization pivoted on a dime. They fired Buck Showalter. They brought in Joe Torre. Uh, the Yankees made a lot of personnel changes o- over the offseason between 95 and 96. So we're right back into the postseason in 96, and you're trying to still – you know, wash away the 95 memories. And, you know, that's the most recent memory you had. And uh, there's nothing worse than losing a big game, a walk-off game in, in postseason. I mean, that stays with you forever. I still remember 1995 like it was yesterday when we got knocked out. So, yes, you feel that responsibility. You have a chance, another opportunity to redeem yourself. Yeah, that's what I felt. You know, when we won game three, when I won game three in 1996, I felt like it was a little bit of redemption not only for, for getting us back in the series or at least saving some base at that particular time, but you're still thinking about 95 and your most recent postseason experience that, that was pretty negative. Then you look at game six from the other night where the Astros close it out. Luis Garcia is on the mound. I don't think a lot of people knew what exactly he could give, not only because young pitcher, obviously, big moment, but also he had his knee barking. And I'm just looking at my notes here. He and, and Brent Strom, the Astros pitching coach, they talked about on the broadcast about the, the change in the mechanics in his, uh, his lower body to kind of offset the pain in his knee. And he was actually throwing harder. He was throwing harder fastballs in that game than he did in terms of the amount of heaters that he was throwing at that specific velocity. But how difficult is that to pull off in between starts where you're tinkering your mechanics to try and make the pain subside a little bit. How, how tough is that? Well, that's really difficult to make that quick of an adjustment in the course of one series, uh, which makes me believe that maybe his knee was a little more severe than they were letting on. Uh, the treatment that he got in between starts certainly uh, helped as well. I mean, if you've got a healthy knee or if you feel that you've got the pain out of there, that somehow you got some relief uh, from the pain in your knee, then you can push off more. You can generate a lot more force into your pitches. You can gain velocity. You can gain spin rate. All of your stuff is immeasurably better, and that's what we saw. And to to the extent of maybe almost the best he's had all year. I think uh, top end velocity he was at or near the top of what he's shown all year long. So you know it was a bit of a remarkable turnaround for him personally, uh, physically. Only he knows, and their training staff knows exactly how severe his injury was and what remedies they used in between starts. But nonetheless, wow, he had a great year. He's capable of having a start like that. But you're talking about a night and day shift in his overall repertoire and his stuff and what he showed in that game. And he rocks the baby, too. It's uh, definitely a a different look for for opponents. And for the Astros lineup that we're seeing, right, Jordan Alvarez is leading the way. He wasn't there in, in 2017. And, we, you know, we're talking about uh, coming into this podcast, how we're feeling about both teams, the Astros, the Braves, what we like about the the core of that Astros team and what they're trying to do here. Alvarez wasn't there in 2017, but he's been along for the ride long enough. And now we're really seeing him blossom and kind of being the most dangerous threat in that lineup. You can make that argument. How would you go about facing Alvarez, David? But, you know, I, I, you know, the thing about Alvarez is, is that he's well protected in that lineup. Uh, he, he's the perfect fit right in the middle there. And, and they have 
a dynamic offensive team. When you're talking about uh, Guriel Jr. batting seventh in that lineup, that shows you how deep they are. And this is probably a good place for James to jump in here in terms of their approach. And in an era where we're talking about, you know, an all or nothing era where it's strikeouts and, and walks and home runs, the three true outcomes, as they say in modern analytics, the Houston Astros are kind of turning back the clock a little bit. They're a high contact oriented team. Uh, they have a diverse style up and down through their lineup. And certainly, uh, you know, when you, when you look at Jordan Alvarez right in the middle there, he kind of fits that profile. He's a selective hitter, but yet a powerful hitter. And uh, he kind of is the guy that, uh, you know, that they look to all of a sudden. He's the guy that's a, that they're big bopper in the middle of their order, and the rest of the guys can kind of set the table. Right. And, I mean, the Astros – being such a powerful team, they were the highest scoring team in the major leagues this season. And a lot of the time it's, you know, it's like a, an either or, you know, tr- you know, selling out for power, trading contact in order to maximize the production on the hits that you do get. And that is a recipe for success. A lot of the time, the Astros have been able to thread the needle in that they have a, a, a powerful offense and they have the lowest strikeout rate in the major leagues. Um, they struck out 19% of their plate appearances. Um, and they were in the top half in walk rate. So you usually don't see – it's usually one or the other. Um, but the Astros kind of br- have broken the mold here where, you know, you have a, a, a powerful lineup that still makes a lot of contact, and that's the sweet spot. So it's usually the teams that are low in strikeout – are a little bit more of the slap hitter uh, type of teams or teams that struggle to score runs and they feel like they have to manufacture runs. Um, like this year, you know, down there with the Astros, I mean, you had, yeah, the Blue Jays were also a high scoring team that didn't strike out a lot, but you also had the Royals and, and the Nationals and, and the Pirates down there too. And that's usually where, you know, the, the lower scoring teams tend to reside too. Um, and the Astros have really, um, kind of kind of turn that around and you mentioned the all or nothing the flip side of that is you know there's there's two sides to the coin there's more than one way to win the the Braves have been really successful scoring runs and they're very reliant on home runs they they had the fourth highest rate of runs scored on homers this year um, so it's what we kind of call home run reliance and I know the Yankees have been criticized for being too home run reliant over the years, but uh, the Braves have shown that that's a, that's a way that you can win too. They had the fourth highest rate there. And this year in the postseason, they've scored half of their runs on home runs, which is even higher than their rate during the regular season. So there's, there's different ways to, to have success in October. I think the Astros for a few seasons now, right? I think they do a really good job at adjusting their two strike approach for the playoffs. And I think that's a huge separator with, you know, with their, their lineup here. And I think that's what makes them so difficult at this time of the year. What do you make of certain teams in terms of, of pitching and the defense behind them, David, adjusting to how lineups are adjusting their two-strike approach in October? It's a great question. You know, I, I can tell you this. If I'm a starting pitcher, my approach against these two teams would be if I'm facing the Astros – I would know that my fastball in the inside corner would have to be a weapon because when you've got a team that doesn't chase and they have a high contact rate, 
and they're eyeballing a lot of pitches that are off the plate, those sliders that just miss, those sliders that sweep off the dish just a little bit to all those right-handed hitters. Or maybe for me, a right-handed pitcher to Jordan Alvarez uh, or, or Jordan would be, you know, those splitter that breaks down and away off the plate. I would have to get my fastball inside corner ready to go to try to get some called third strikes or keep them honest. You've got to have your fastball ready to go. You've got to pitch the Houston Astros inside. And then conversely, when you're facing the Braves, it's just the opposite. I've got to get them chasing. I've got to get my slider that looks like a strike until the last minute and breaks out of the zone. Any pitch that I have that's designed to look like a strike and then, and then be out of the strike zone would be the pitches I need to get working against the Atlanta Braves. So it's completely opposite in terms of my approach against these two lineups because of, of the way they approach it and, and, and their strengths and their weaknesses. We saw Nathan Evaldi try and you know, do that a lot with his, with his slider against the Astros over the course of the ALCS, you know, making it kind of fall off the outer edge of the plate against those right-handed hitters. Overall, though, on the Red Sox, you know, where, where do you think they fell short with, with their pitching, David? Because it, it, like we were talking about, this series, the script of it flipped. We obviously know that could happen in October, but where do you think they went wrong? in this series after that game three? I think they just came up short on the pitching side, especially the bullpen. And, you know, and I'm looking back historically, I mean, you know, when I think of the, the run that we had with the Yankees in the 90s, it was an unsung bullpen that really came through in big spots. And uh, if you look at the Atlanta Braves, all their lefties in the bullpen, they really peaked at the right time. They were dominant collectively together. I think that's where Boston fell short. Their bullpen kind of got worn out a little bit. Their overall pitching kind of got worn out a little bit. The strategy of using starters in relief, uh, the risk-reward of that certainly is very debatable. Uh, I, I, I kind of see both, both ends of it. The Dodgers a little bit to that extent as well. Dave Roberts using that strategy, I think, kind of, kind of backfired on them a bit. And that really comes with when you're using your starters in relief, it generally means that you're a little short in the bullpen. And I think that's what happened with the Red Sox. They, they came up a little short in, over, in their overall depth of, of their relief corps. I think that's a good segue into that Dodger-Brave series. And James, using starters as relievers this postseason, obviously it creates a ripple effect going into that starting pitcher's next start. What did we learn or what did – what did we gain in terms of evidence making a case one way or another in recent playoff history? What, what, what did the championship series, especially with the Dodgers, did mention the Red Sox with Evaldi? What did all this kind of add up and continue to tell us? Well, I like, you know, Coney was talking about weighing the, the risk and reward, and we've seen it pay off in 2018. Alex Cora had a lot of success with that, uh, and the Red Sox did won a title doing it that way. The Nationals did a lot of the same in 2019 and it worked. And when it works, you look like a genius. And then when it doesn't, there's open space for criticism, uh, which is warranted. Now, Coney, you said that, you know, the Red Sox doing it, maybe it's a little more out of necessity because they were a little thin in the bullpen. The Dodgers have a good, strong, deep bullpen. And so I, I agree with a lot of the people that out there saying that, you know, it was a bit of an unforced error. Some of these times with the, with the Dodgers doing it, um, especially with, Urias in uh, in game two of that uh, Brave series, um, but just um, Coney and you mentioned uh, some of the uh, the depth and the guys peaking at the right time in Atlanta. 
Um, how about Tyler Matzik? Uh, this guy has got to be one of the best stories uh, in, in, the, in this postseason. I mean, the guy had, was out of the big leagues for five years with the Yips. He was pitching for the Texas Air Hogs in indie ball. Uh, he comes back to the big leagues last year. He has a 2.64 ERA in two seasons with the Braves. And now this postseason, he's gotten huge outs. He's pitched in nine of the 10 games that they've played. And in 10 and a third innings, he's given up four hits and had 17 strikeouts, including that brilliant game uh, coming in uh, and getting, getting out of that second and third jam uh, to beat the Dodgers the other night. So um, that's, you mentioned the unsung heroes in a bullpen and, and the Astros have had a little bit of that too, with guys like Phil Maton. Um, and you never know where, where these guys are, you know, how these guys are going to step up. Yeah, very true, James. I mean, it is a great story. The Braves, the collection of left-handed pitchers, just, just utterly dominant at the right time for them. That's why they're in the world series. Uh, and, and yes, uh, the Astros as well. If you look at them, uh, some of the trade acquisitions, Graveman that they picked up uh, from Seattle was, it was a great acquisition for them kind of show up their bullpen. Maton, as you mentioned, uh, certainly a big part of it. So yeah, we thought the Astros were going to come up short in their pitching, especially with Lance McCullers jr. And their starting rotation, you know, on, on the shelf and, and not going to be a part of this series as well. So yeah, the young pitching really stepped up as we mentioned before, but yeah, as always, the bullpens tell a story in postseason, even more so than ever before. Starters are going uh, fewer outs, fewer innings than ever before in postseason. Managers are quick to, to make the moves if there's any kind of struggle early on, uh, and, and rightly so. I think this kind of goes to the point of there's more better pitchers. There's more better relievers. There, there's just a volume of pitching is so much better now uh, compared to 20 years ago. There's so many more better choices. You know, I used the example uh, doing a Yankee game earlier this year where Jonathan Loisega was pitching and Clay Holmes was warming up and they were going to take out, you know, Aaron Boone took out the guy who has a 99 mile an hour sinker and brought in a guy who's got a 99 mile an hour sinker. I mean, to show you the stuff that's in major league bullpens nowadays is outrageous. It's some of the biggest changes I've seen in the game over, over the last several years. These guys throw harder. They're better. The shape of their pitches, the way they're training is better than ever. Uh, and there are more pitchers to choose from. If you're a major league manager, you've got a lot of great choices in the bullpens nowadays. And to not use them really would be the story as opposed to leaving a starter in too long. And you mentioned the, uh, the, the share of innings that relievers are carrying now in the postseason. So I'll, I'll give some numbers for you guys. So, as recently as 2014 and 2015, the percentage of innings thrown by relievers in the postseason was around 40%. Um, and, it's, and it's ticked up almost every year. So it was around 40% in 14 and 15. Then it went up to 43. Then it went up to 46. Then it went up to 49. So this year, so far, 54% of innings have been pitched by relief pitchers with 46% uh, thrown by thrown by starters. So, and then just looking at the, uh, the split for the two teams left standing, uh, the starter to reliever inning split for the Braves is 44 for the starters and 43 for the relievers. So that's a pretty even split. The Astros is, is way in favor of the relievers. 38 innings for the starters, 50 for the relievers. Part of that is ineffectiveness. 
We mentioned the, uh, the Garcia and Valdez uh, early knockouts early in the series. And then they've made up for it with, you know, longer starts uh, later on. But, you know, General Dusty has been uh, has been pulling all the right levers, moving guys in and out and quick hooks and knowing exactly when to go to that next guy in the pen. It's a great point. You know, and Dusty Baker, you know, everybody thought, wow, he's, you know, old school manager. He's not going to run the bullpens uh, the way the way they should be run, according to, to modern thinking. And he's been ahead of the curve. He had a great series managing and on both ends. It wasn't just about when to make the move early, how to manage a game early when you get into the pen early. It's a, he kind of rode out the hot hands too with Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia too as well. So he he pushed all the right buttons. And there's certain things that you just have to have to have to have a feel for. And when you're in that major league dugout, you know the pulse of your players. You know who's hurting a little bit, who's a little bit uh, you know under the weather, who's feeling strong, who's confident. You know, there's the human element that still has a place in the game. There's still an eye test, you know, and Dusty Baker understands that eye test uh, probably as well as anybody in the game right now. Yeah, I think he nailed the, the inverse in all this, right? You, you know, you want to figure out when to use your relievers. He's done a great job knowing when to maybe stretch out his starters a little bit more, give them a little bit more of, of a leash here. But then, hey, the guys that are – are in that bullpen, they're doing it. The Gravemans, the Presleys, the Matons, like we talked about, Brooks Raley as well. I wanna I wanna go back to putting starters in as as relievers in just a moment, but touching on that brave bullpen, when you see what what Matzik, AJ Minter's there as well, Will Smith, you know, closing out games, but what they were able to do in terms of slaying the Dodgers, right? Like can can that set them up to thinking, man, you know, we're, we're, we're in a good spot. No moment's going to be too big for us when you're taking down the almighty Dodgers. I, they should feel very confident right now. They feel like they are somewhat a team of destiny. Uh, their fan base is lit up, absolutely lit up. There were people at Truist Park at their home ballpark before that last game, about four hours before the game, you know, waiting for the gates to open. I mean, the excitement and the hunger there is real and that impacts a, a team you feel it you feed off of it uh you know does it does it equate into runs or helping you win games i don't know but certainly it's nice to have that emotion uh it's better than not having it that's for sure so if you're the braves you feel like you're the team that your season started almost on august 1st since that point they they're almost a, a well over a hundred win pace team i think that's how they feel they are rather than the team that couldn't get over 500 for the first three three months of the year or hovered right around that 500 mark and wondered what kind of team they were going to be or if they had enough to get there. Certainly playing in the National League East helped them. It gave them a little bit of a break as they weren't really pushed there and, and the opportunity was there. But if you look at the Braves over the last two months, how they performed, you know, they played just about as well as anybody in the game. So they should feel good about themselves. And that clinching game over the weekend, Minter, Matzik, Smith, 15 up, 15 down. To, uh, to end it and send the Braves to their first World Series since uh, 1999. We talk about some of these strategies that may pay off, some that may not pay off, some of the newer age strategies. What goes into incorporating those, but also having enough knowledge or enough evidence to continue doing that? 
I think that's the key part, right? Teams, organizations, they they bank on that evidence that they're getting when they're incorporating these strategies. And for me, look, I think when you run into a certain team, that that'll matter more in the playoffs than some of the the failed strategies that a team like the Dodgers may have set up or so. But um, look, if you're telling me that this is the way the pitching workloads should be because there is evidence behind it. Okay. Look, I may not agree with it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that it's wrong. Um, what I am hung up on, and this goes back to what we were talking about in our, in our first episode too. And I, it, it's going to take a lot for me to be against the strategies that teams are, are putting in place for the very first time during the most important games, during the most important times of the season. Like you could say that, there is the buy-in element on the part of the pitcher here, but I'll never really understand why teams put players in unfamiliar situations during the postseason. Case in point, Julio Arias. Yes, he did it before in his career, but not this season. And how many times do we talk about, David, routines? It's out of your routine. So how much evidence do we need to see before we – you know, maybe we, we move in the other direction or do you start incorporating these strategies earlier in the season before October, if you have that logo room? It's an excellent point. Uh, I don't know that you would uh, use it during the regular season, this sort of strategy of using some starters in relief, just in the, in, in case you're going to, you're going to need them in postseason. Um, if you look at the Dodgers, they really needed Max Scherzer just to get past that, that first round there, they were up against it his first relief appearance was really out of necessity. And the reason you use your starters in those spots is because they're the starters are your better pitchers. You're trying to get your best arms in, in the biggest spots in the high leverage spots. Now your point about unfamiliarity is, is well noted. Uh, but sometimes the spot is bigger than the familiarity argument. So yes, uh, I say yes to Scherzer the first time they had to use them and to close that game out just, to get, to, the, just to get to the next level. Yep. Now, yeah, you know, uh, the next move with the young lefty, Urias, uh, that, that was uh, a little tricky. I, I think the risk reward there, the formula there, maybe they pushed it a little bit because they could have used somebody else. They've, they've got plenty of arms in their bullpen, a lot of power, whether it was Gratterar, Brewstar, Brewstar, uh, Gratterall could have been used in that spot. Uh, you know, that's the one, yeah, we, you, that, that leaves yourself open to second guessing because then in his next start, he ends up giving up three home runs. And even though he says his stuff was okay, you know, it, did it have an impact? Was his stuff diminished because of that relief appearance? And you didn't get the bang for, for your buck in that relief appearance as well. So, yeah, that, that one's ripe for second guessing. There are times when you need your starters in big games, walkout games, walkaway games, or walkoff games. Yeah, you, 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 get, you got a Chris Sale a couple of years ago for Boston, or if you've got uh, a Max Scherzer that, that can get you to the promised land, so to speak then yeah, I, I'm all for using starters in that spot. But to use it, you know, when there's a, you know, a middle-of-the-road kind of situation to where the, the risk doesn't match, match the reward, then yeah, you know, I agree with you there that maybe that, that, that should be something that should be looked at again. Yeah, I know CS. Scherzer, no problem with. You're closing out a series. You're trying to get to the next point. Arias is the one that I'm, uh, I'm hung right. up on. Right. It was NLCS game two with a two-run lead in the eighth. Um, that isn't a break glass in case of emergency type of situation to me. So World Series now, Braves 
and the Astros, a lot of storylines going into it. From the pitching perspective, David, though, what do you think is the number one thing fans should be watching for in regards to pitching with this? Well, I think, once again, you're, if you're on the Houston side, you are looking at those young starters again because they're the reason you got there. So uh, Framber Valdez and, Lu- and Luis Garcia now are, are two extremely important pieces to, to your chances to, to win a World Series. And then on the Brave side, you know, Max Freed. Is Max Freed going to be Max Freed again? I mean, he's uh, one of the best young starters in the game. He can absolutely dominate and take over a game by himself. And are you looking at him a couple of times in this series? Are you looking at him maybe three times in this series as a potential starter? I guess it depends on how, on how things shake down early in this, early in the series. But, you know, for me, uh, you know, it's, it's really about those young starters in Houston because it's not going to be Zach Greinke. It's not going to be Lance McCullers Jr. They're short on the rotation side. So it's the kids, the kids better be all right. And on the Atlanta side, I mean, do they cool off offensively? Does Rosario cool off a little bit? I mean, can he keep going at that pace? Offensively, Freddie Freeman, is he going to be the star? You know, he, he's one of the best hitters in the game. He's waited a long time for this moment to be in the World Series. My eyes are on the stars. I always look at the stars. I look at Freeman. And then I, and I look at the young starters for Houston as being a key. You mentioned Max Freed. I think that was uh, an interesting point in that. NLCS because he, you know, he struggled in the game that ultimately sent the series back to Atlanta. If you're in that brave starting rotation with a young pitcher like Max Freed, that happens. What are you saying to him as you move forward into the World Series? No, I, what I would say to him is, you know, when you're facing a very patient hitting Houston Astros lineup, that you need to be even more aggressive and go after them and strike one and getting ahead. The little cliches, the little simple things matter even more. And Max Fried has an excellent breaking repertoire. He's got a breaking ball repertoire. He's got a great curveball that he patterned after Sandy Koufax almost. And, and he's got a good slider that he can mix in as well. So he's got a breaking ball package. But for me, his fastball, getting ahead and finishing off hitters. When you, when you have a reputation that he does as having a really plus-plus breaking ball, that that leaves the inside corner open. And I'd say, I say this again, and it bears repeating, the fastball in the inside corner to this Houston Astros lineup up and down is going to be an important pitch for Max Freed. How many called third strikes you can get uh, on that particular pitch might be a key to look at. And it would be part of my strategy with Max Freed. Set up your fastball, get your fastball going, and, and more importantly, get it on the inside corner to these right-handed batters, especially. James, from a statistical standpoint, when you're seeing some of the splits that you were talking about earlier between the, the bullpen and the rotation and what we know, what David's talking about now, where it's kind of like two guys that we saw them show up at the end of the ALCS. They kind of have to do it. They better be doing it here in the World Series based on the way this best of seven schedule maps out, like, do you, do you think like this split can, can sustain itself or are we tilting heavily in one other direction? Well, one thing I was a little surprised by is, you know, seeing guys like Matzik and, and a lot of the pitchers that have pitched in six, seven, eight, nine games this postseason is how little that they have to, pitch 
back-to-back days or three days in a row because of all the extra off days that you get in the postseason that you don't usually get in the regular season. So if you're, so Matzik, just uh, as one example, he pitched in every game except one for the Braves this postseason, but you don't play three days in a row barring rainouts or whatever until games three, four, five in the LCS and the world series. So with more off days, that's why teams are able to do this to an extent that they can't really do it over a sustainable long stretch in the regular season. So this year, going back to the the inning split with uh, starters and relievers, the starter reliever split was 54-46% starters to relievers. That's flipped in the uh, the postseason where it's 46-54 as far as a percentage because with more off days, you can, you can lean on your high leverage relievers more often. So I think it, it's repeatable in going into this series. I think it helps too that both teams, you know, neither t- team was pushed to seven games. So you, you get kind of get a couple days as a breather before going into this series. And David, you also talked about Jordan Alvarez and how you would approach him and try and cool him off. And then you just touched on Eddie Rosario moments ago. How do you go about facing Rosario if you're the Houston pitching staff? Well, the one thing that you noticed, if you go back and you look at some of Rosario's at-bats, is that he consistently got good pitches to hit in the strike zone to drive. And uh, that was, to me, to me the, 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 the big mistake on opposing pitchers' part is that Rosario is notoriously a free swinger. Uh, he's not up there to walk. He swings early in the count. He swings often. He will chase. And they just were not able to exploit his his uh, his nature, and in terms of throwing enough pitches that looked like strikes, and then broke out of the strike zone, and that's the key. I mean, I, one of the keys to pitching, you know, I, you know, I learned this a long time ago, is that your your pitch design, which is paramount now more than ever before, in terms of you know the the modern technology you can use to design your pitches, the tunneling effect you can get, pitches coming out of the same plane and breaking different ways so important now in pitch design for me it's the pitches that look like strikes and end up like balls so you throw strikes that look like balls and you throw balls that look like strikes and that's the key and that's that's uh, with Rosario you can get him to chase uh, I think that uh, you know the Houston Astros are probably going to be more adept at that they're going to be more in tune to that uh, you know Brett Strom's a great pitching coach he's going to be all over that in terms of how to pitch this guy how to approach him you have to throw just enough strikes to keep him honest. But then once you get ahead, you've got to get him to chase. You do not throw him anything in the strike zone. He got far too many good pitches to hit. Too many pitches not only in the strike zone, but in his wheelhouse. And he just did not miss him. I, you mentioned Brad Strom. I think that's a guy that we, you know, we should try and have on this podcast at some point when the dust settles with this season. Because yeah, he's, a, he's one of the best going right now in terms of, uh, in terms of pitching coaches. When you have the unsung heroes of October, right, David, the, the Eddie Rosarios or, or Marco Scudero, for example, with the Giants years back, when you're dealing with that unlikely hero, and he's not a superstar, yes, what is being said amongst the pitchers in, in the preparation for that game? And does that unlikeliness kind of make it harder to, to give in and, and pitch around them? 
uh, you know, sometimes you give the hitters too much credit, you know, and so that's one of the, that was always one of my pet peeves in, in some of these pitcher scouting meetings, you know, before the game or before the series and everything was centered around the strength of the hitter. This the hitter does this well, the hit, you know, avoid throwing this type of pitch to a hitter, but you, you, it makes you defensive as a pitcher. And sometimes you get away from your own strengths. So the, my advice would be pitch to your strengths. First and foremost, what do you do? Well, if you have a good slider, and this hitter's a good slider ball hitter, then that doesn't mean you can't throw your slider. You just need to sort of, you know, uh, get it in a better spot or make sure that you set it up well and sequence your pitches, uh, you know, uh, appropriately. So pitch to your strengths first and foremost as a pitcher. And then, of course, factor in the weaknesses of the hitter and the situation. But nonetheless, for the pitcher, it's still about being aggressive. You know, the, the hitter doesn't know what's coming. The pitcher knows what's coming. That's the advantage, the built-in mystery for a pitcher. Should never be forgotten for, for, for any pitcher that takes the mound. You have the ball in your hand. You know what you're going to throw. The hitter doesn't know what's coming. You need to really use that mystery to your advantage. You see any similarities with how these coaching staffs are handling their pitching? Uh, certainly uh, to a certain extent. You know, I, I think the Braves match up well against maybe the hottest hitter for the Astros in Jordan uh, uh, you know, when you think about the series that he had, uh, the Braves have some of the best left-handed pitching in the game going right now. Their bullpen, as we said, has been great. They're on a run. We've got Max Fried, uh, one of the better left-handed starters in the game. So the collection of left-handed pitching that the Braves have really match up well against any left-handed hitter. So they're going to have weapons to, to counteract the left-handed hitters. I think it's going to come down to maybe the right-handed hitters. Uh, for the Houston Astros and how they match up against some of these left-handed relievers and, and how exactly the matchups are going to present themselves throughout the course of this series. We were just kind of having that debate about when to exactly deploy a starting pitcher as a reliever, big spots, kind of zooming out on what the Dodgers were doing. Something else that we touched on briefly earlier, something that really stood out, and David, Ron Darling brought it up, uh, on the broadcast in game six between the Dodgers and Braves and talking about just the defense behind pitchers in the postseason. I think it was Cody Bellinger who had a, you know, two strike approach going the other way, hitting it right through the hole into left field for a ground ball base hit that at that point tied the game. The, the two strike approach, the shifts. Why haven't teams adjusted the, the defensive alignments in the postseason, and, and because so much light has kind of been shed on it over the last few days, do you think we could see some changes in the World Series? I think it's situation to situation. You know, really have to look at who's batting, who's pitching. You know, if it's leading off an inning, the scoreboard, there's so many variables that go come into play here. You know, um, is, there a, is there a potential to bunt? Uh, is there a potential to do a push bunt and, and leading off the seventh in a tie game and, and get somebody on base? Certainly, I would look for those situations. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to follow. It's tougher to do than just to talk about doing. In other words, uh, yeah, these pitchers have great stuff. Uh, you're, you're talking about high-velocity pitchers. It's a lot easier said than done. Hey, just hit a ground ball over there, and this guy's throwing 99-mile-an-hour sinkers, demon sinkers on my fist. Uh, it just is not that easy to do or even to bunt, uh, you know, Hey, why can't you just uh, square around and bunt and hit the ball over there or bunt it over there? Well, 
once again, the stuff of the pitcher dictates on what you can do, what your efficacy uh, can be in those situations, whether you can pull it off or not. Do you have that back control? Uh, you know, does it call for it? Uh, yeah, there, there's, as I said, uh, it's something to watch later in games and situationally speaking, but not just every time. I mean, yeah, we've seen, you know, the Braves are built on home runs, as James said. You know, the team that out home out, out homers, the home run differential is, is a big story in this postseason for the Braves. Uh, and, and that's going to continue on. The team that team that hits the most homers in this series probably going to be, have the, be in the position to win this World Series. Coney uh, mentioning you guys talking shifts. Uh, the Astros and Braves are two of the four shiftiest defenses in the major leagues this season. So and I wonder, you guys, what at what point do teams start to you know, okay, a guy goes the other way one time. You're not going to see, are you going to see them go back to a quote-unquote normal defense uh, in the next at-bat? Or do you say, well, we got to see him do it more often uh, before we start to, to change our ways? Because the, uh, the Astros had the third highest rate of shifts and the Braves had the fourth highest rate of shifts. And they have shifted more and more as the season's gone on. And to uh, improve their defense, they, their defense has gotten better as the season's gone on due in part to these shifts. And uh, by the way, the two teams ahead of them, the Dodgers shifted the most, and then the Mets were uh, second. So three of the four teams left standing plus, uh, plus the Mets. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. It's a great point, James, that uh, the Braves, when they took off and started to play a lot better baseball, we mentioned the last couple of months of the season and the pace that they played on, a well over 100-win pace team, coincides with their more shifting and getting better defensively and uh, things coming together. So – when they started to win more games and they really got on a run, they were shifting more and playing better defense. So I think they'd be reluctant to come out of that unless it's just situationally, you know, a big spot, a close game, a hitter with the ability to, to do that, to maybe bunt or push something the other way. Maybe maybe then you guard against it with bringing in your third baseman a little closer or trying to, trying to take away something just with one fielder on, on the opposite side of the shift. You even talk about the Braves. A lot of people in the game talk about them as, oh, man, you know, they, they had 88 wins in the regular season, you know, bar- barely a, a real contender, so to speak, not giving them enough credit. Like you mentioned, David, since they started really winning, it was on a pace of over 100 wins. I think it was over 105 wins even. So when they developed that change in thinking specifically on, you know, in, in shifting without – you know, maybe not having that exactly the, the clear cut evidence as to why, what do you think forced them to shift the way they, for lack of a better term or to be cliche, like what, what, what made you think, what, what, what do you think made them change the way they were thinking with their shifts? You know, I, I, I believe that the proof is in the pudding. I think that, you know, once you see a little bit of success with it, and you're shown the data, especially when you have kind of some old school coaches. I mean, Ron Washington's on that staff, right? I mean, they, they've got some of some old school mentalities on that staff. And sometimes the learning curves, are, you know, a little steeper when, you, when you're set in your ways. Uh, certainly their manager as well. You know, a career minor league guy was hired by Hank Aaron, Snicker. I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, uh, their backgrounds, it, it's those are the guys that are a little slower to come around. So I I think once you see success, you see more and more data, you see other teams using it, and you see the numbers, 
it's hard to argue it. It's hard to refute it because these are where the balls are being hit, especially on the ground. And a lot of times you see different shifts in the outfield and the infield. The outfield might be playing them to hit the other way and the infield's playing them to pull. Well, the data's there. And this is, this is the, uh, this is where these baseballs are being hit. And it makes sense to put the defense, you know, where, where the ball's being hit the majority of the time. Now, are there exceptions to the rule? Uh, is there situationally, you know, something that can be done to counter that? Yes. But by and large, you know, if you're putting your defenders where the balls are being hit, you're going to benefit from that. And the, the Atlanta Braves certainly did. And the more success they had, the more they bought into it. You guys both mentioned um, the Braves playing at over a hundred win pace lately. So I'll just, uh, to give you the exact, uh, the exact number, it's two out of three on the nose. So since July 31st, including the postseason, they're 44 and 22. So that's exactly two out of three. And that's 108 wins over a 162 game stretch. So that's the kind of pace that they're playing at. So on the one hand, you could say 88 and 73, that is, um, you know, one of the, that, that is the eighth lowest. They have the eighth lowest winning percentage by any team that's one that's played in the world series. Um, but the, the other side of the coin is that the team that has currently constructed over the last two months is not exactly the same team that we saw over the whole bulk of the season. You mentioned the, in terms of shifting the defense and the Braves coaching, you know, they, they kind of have a more old school approach at times it's, it's refreshing at other times, maybe like you said, it kind of slow to come around and incorporate some of that thinking. Then you take a look at some of the pictures that they're throwing out there in, in the rotation and you have Anderson and free the younger guys. And then you come to a guy like Charlie Morton. He's been around, right? A veteran has a lot of success as well. Could a pitcher like that have a say in how the defense behind them is, is lining up during a game? I think absolutely they can have a say. They're certainly involved in it. Uh, to what extent? I think it depends on the pedigree of the pitcher. You know, if you're a veteran guy with a lot of success in certain situations, you know, you're, you maybe depending on your repertoire that you can make your case, hey, look, I want to pitch this hitter this way, so I need some protection here on the infield just in case uh, or in the outfield. So, yeah, it, it, there is still a place in the game for that, without a doubt. Uh, but at the same time, when you, when you think about, you know, the Major League Baseball averages over the years going down more and more, in particular against left-handed hitters, and when you're talking about the shift, it was dominated by left-handed hitters. And if you're a Yankee fan, you remember Brian McCann. Uh, you got kind of being one of the early left-handed batters that suffered from the shift and a lot of hits have been taken away from left-handed batters. Now we're seeing more and more shifts against right-handed batters over the last couple of years. And there is some studies that suggest that maybe that that has been counterproductive uh, as far as the extreme shifts against right-handed batters. Uh, right-handed batters are more used to seeing right-handed pitchers. So the platoon advantage isn't as distinct uh, when you're right on right as opposed to left on left, because left-handed batters don't see a lot of left-handed pitchers just by numbers. So I, I still think that we're, uh, you know, the, you know, how this, how this is baked into the cake, so to speak, in the long run, this is still a, a moving target for, for organizations, for, for data gurus on the defensive side. Um, what is the right way to go about this in particular with right-handed hitters? Have we overcooked it a little bit? Maybe we need to back up a little bit. And, and to, to your point, Justin, situationally in certain parts of the game, 
well, maybe we need to rethink some of these some of these shifts, in particular against right-handed batters. That's I think one of the things I'm going to be looking for here. Just if if the Braves in particular, because the most recent example, you know, tied the, game, the last game up for them at, at one point with against the Dodgers. So uh, I'm going to see how they react to that. Really, that's one of the things I'm looking out for. X factors, guys. If we could pick one pitcher on each team to kind of be an X factor in this fall classic, who are you going with, both of you? James, I'll defer to you right here, and you you could lead the way. Oh, I'll uh, I'll I'll tee it up for you. I'll go. Um, let's see. I'll go Charlie Morton on the uh, on the Brave side, and uh, and I'll and on the Astros side. Um, how about Valdez? You know, uh, with a with a game one start, um, he can he, as far as setting the tone, um, and then he would also turn around and maybe start a game five as well. Um, and coming off the the absolutely brilliant game that he had at Fenway um, in his in his last outing, uh, I can't go wrong with those two. <laughs> How about you, Coney? Yeah, you know the interesting part for me, you know, the example I use is I go back to. Uh, to the late nineties, you know, the Cleveland, when, when the Yankees were playing uh, Cleveland Indians and the, the Indians had a couple of switch hitters at the top of their order and Omar Vizquel and, and Robbie Alomar. And then they had Jim Tomey, a big left-handed bat in there. And they also, you know, they had pretty good balance both ways, but I'm trying to figure out, you know, how Framber Valdez probably, you know, in agreeing with James there, how he matches up. And we certainly know that Ozzy Albies bats better right-handed. So maybe that's that's a disadvantage there. So, and maybe he he might be able to neutralize Freddie Freeman a little bit with that great curveball that he has. So I'm looking at the matchups there. They kind of cancel each other out. Uh, I like right-handed pitching to you know generally speaking because you can met you can make Ozzy Albies bat left-handed and he's he's worse left-handed than right-handed. But then you leave yourself susceptible to Freddie Freeman. So yeah, I mean to me, I think it comes down to Charlie Morton. Because of his curveball, can neutralize righties and lefties, uh, for that matter. You know, on his side, on the on the on the Houston side, you know, I, I you know, I, to me, with Dusty Baker as the manager, uh, boy, you know, that's I I'm not going to go with Valdez as much. I'm I'm probably I'm probably going to go with Luis Garcia and the way he pitched. Can he continue? And, and you know, the the stuff that he showed. Is he healthy? Is his knee healthy again? You know, to me, he might be the key because there was such a big drop off in his stuff from start to start, at least, the, you know, a pickup rather. You know, he was throwing the ball in the low 90s in his first start and then got up into the mid 90s in his next start. So does that continue or not? I think he's probably a key pitcher for them uh, in, in terms of, their, in, you know, uh, what their chances are in, in, in moving, moving on and getting to getting a championship. You mentioned uh, Garcia as far as it relates to, uh, to left-handers. Maybe a matchup to watch for um, Garcia against, say, Freddie Freeman, because the split, his Garcia's career splits are, are a little stark. Career batting average against righties, 173 off Garcia. Against lefties, 279. So it's a jump of over 100 points. The slugging is even uh, more uh, stark. 283 career slugging against Garcia by right handers. Lefties slugging 487. So that's a jump of over 200 points. Uh, so over 100 point difference in batting average, 200 in slugging. So that's something where 
is that a target point for the Braves saying we need Freddie? Freddie's a guy that can do damage. It's going to be interesting to watch and see because you, you'd assume that Garcia is going to start game two, right? Valdez going game one. They haven't announced the game two starters as at the time we're recording this, but the the rise in the difference between the improvement in between starts, right, David, from earlier in the ALCS to what we saw in game six. If you're Houston already without Lance McCullers, you're kind of needing to bank that you're going to see the game six version of Luis Garcia. So if that doesn't happen, that's going to leave you in a, in a hairy spot. There is one thing that I'm looking at in my notes from the mental aspect of what we were kind of talking about with Valdez and Garcia turning that ALCS around that I failed to mention before. And I think I, I want to bring it up now because I'd be remiss if I left it out completely. This was Fonber Valdez's quote after he had that bounce back performance. He said, I felt humiliated after the first outing. I set my mind on not letting it happen again. I worked as hard as I possibly could to come back and have success in this outing. David, how? Like what, what could he have possibly done in between those two starts from a mental approach. Yeah, it's more mental than physical, right? Because there's only so much you can do at the end of a season. Physically, sometimes you're almost better off backing off of your workload, giving your body time to, to recoup a little bit, to rest a little bit. That's the most important thing at this time of a year. You, it's not the time of year, year to go to throw an extra long bullpen and work on your curveball, you know, take something out of your arm. It's quite the opposite. It's all mental. Justin, in this part of the year, it's about confidence. It's about believing in yourself. It's about a strategy. It's about looking at the video and understanding what pitches you didn't execute, maybe the sequencing of pitches that you need to get down, how you're going to be aggressive, how you're going to set up the hitters, and which, which pitches are going to use to finish them off. And they have a bit, real good, solid game plan. And that's what you do mentally, and that's what you do on the video and, and with your resources, whether it's uh, your, the analytics department, or whether it's with your pitching coach, to be able to sit down, rebuild your psyche, and come up with a really solid game plan that gives you confidence, to me, is the most important thing you can do. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, he's, he's on the mound. He's telling the slide in game one, right? Founder Valdez for the Astros going up against the Braves at home in Houston as we get this uh, fall classic started. David, what are, what's the – Time like right before the start of the World Series, you know, you had days off Sunday, Monday, game is, is coming up later on, on on Tuesday. What's the buildup and, and what is a player going through in that downtime? It's, it's a completely different mentality because you are now the league champions. So there's a sense of accomplishment there. It's almost like the World Series is a gift. And it's still a tremendous opportunity and all of the players there will tell you, you know, our job's not done yet. You know, we still have more work to do and all the old cliches. But in reality, you know, there's a sense of accomplishment that you did get to the World Series. Very few teams get there. Very few players actually get to play in a World Series. And so to just to be there, you're almost giddy. It's hard not to uh, get caught up in the emotion and the hype and everything from the media, the scrutiny, um, even the banners, and the, the insignias that they paint on the grass, that you're in a World Series, uh, uh, the, the hoopla in the clubhouse, all the autograph signing that you have to do, the patches you put on your hat or on your uniform that signify that you are in a World Series. Uh, it, does, it geeks you out a little bit. You know, it takes a get, little getting used to that, that, that side of the emotion. And then at the same time, you feel like, wow, you know, 
Uh, every pitch is going to be scrutinized. Everybody's counting on me as a starting pitcher. You know, that responsibility is like nothing other in any sport. Uh, you know, the position of a starting pitcher starting out a game in a World Series is, is, is you know, you feel it to your bones. You know, the, the kind of nerves that you've never felt before, the kind of sense of responsibility that you've never felt before. And, and that's why experience matters. Going through that, having been through it matters because, uh, you know, it, it's easy uh, to let your nerves get away from you a little bit. It's easy to be impacted by that. Can't beat that. It's like the highest compete you could possibly have. It sounds a lot like my uh, slow pitch softball playoff team that's going to be coming up later on this week. So uh, that's it. <laughs> exact same mentality. Yeah, guys, are we going to make? Should we do predictions? I mean, is that what we're if about? Like, kind of happy, right? We have watch, a podcast. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, here we go. Fall Classic starting Tuesday night. Uh, James, who you got? Uh, I will go Astros and six. Tony? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to say uh, that this is going to go seven games, and I also am picking the Astros uh, just because they've been there and done that, the experience that I just mentioned, that that, that lineup and uh, how deep it is, I think they're the best offensive lineup in the game. I think they have been for a while. I think other organizations are trying to follow and suit and copy what the Astros are doing right now, very athletic, contact-oriented, but yet they still have power in their lineup. They've kind of found the, the sweet spot of, of the approach offensively that everybody's envious of right now and everybody in the industry is trying to copy right now. So, you know, I give them – because of that, I give them the edge. And with that, I'm copying, uh, I'm copying that. I had the Astros in seven as well. So we're uh, – none, none of us are thinking differently. We all have the Astros. We all think it's going to be a long series. That's what we want. Every last ounce of baseball – in 2021. So, uh, so yeah, James Astros in six, David Astros in seven. I have Astros in seven as well. Uh, guys, anything else? Uh, you know, no, I just, you know, I know that we had talked about having Adam Wayne right on today and maybe we'll try to get him on another day. Obviously he got, he got, uh, tied up today. So, uh, for those of you that were looking for Adam, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back and try to get him back on here at some point. Cause he's a fascinating guy and uh, we'd love to talk to him. Yeah. He's going to be great breaking down the type of season he had and uh, just, you know, evolving as a pitcher, um, Adam being tied up, like you mentioned here today. So we march forward world series going on coming up tonight, game one Astros and Braves, hopefully a good one here. And again, pitching the centerpiece in all of that's going on with the world series. So that's going to do it for us here on uh, this week's episode. Thanks all for listening again, great review and most important subscribe that way you never miss a regular episode that drops each Tuesday. Or, hey, this time of year, bonus episodes could be coming in between. You just never know. So you want to be in the loop for that. Uh, enjoy the World Series, everybody. We'll, we'll talk to you soon.